Esen crucis tenemicis nostis liberus Deus noster. In nomine di Pazzi, Fidi, Pitus Santi, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today's uh, first reading is a, is a passage from a sermon by the prophet Jeremiah in the temple. It's one of the two sermons that he is said to have uh, presented there to the people in the temple. And he had declared that, that there was a danger for the temple, that the people would be assailed and attacked by the Babylonian Empire. He had said also that the people had not lived up to the demands of the covenant. They had not lived according to God's law. In a certain sense, he was berating the people, as is what prophets often do for the infidelity of the people. He's warning them that the temple will be destroyed. So, in the reading we have today, there's a a confrontation between Jeremiah and some of the royal authorities in, in Judah. It's a time of political upheaval and crisis. But there are other prophets as well, the so-called bad prophets. And there, what are they saying? Well, they're just telling the people to chill. No, no worries, no problem. The Babylonians will never attack our temple. Because we have the Lord on our side. So the temple can never be destroyed. Babylonians are, are not a threat. We have the presence of the Lord. Don't listen to what this guy Jeremiah is saying. So of course, Jeremiah's words were not popular. Indeed, they, they threatened to kill him. And he, was, he, he had to stand trial. And he almost died. I mean, it was... They accused him of, of blasphemy. So in this passage that we have today, it's a beautiful passage where Jeremiah declares that he was innocent of the charges leveled against him. And if they wanted to kill him, they could do so. But he was innocent. Well, when you think it's all going to go bad for him, in the end, the king, King Ahikam, used his influence and managed to save Jeremiah from being handed over and being executed. But he was still in danger. Later, he's stoned to death in Egypt. But anyway, for that moment, he is saved. And there is uh, there's a, always a connection with the Old Testament reading or, or any first reading in the liturgy and the gospel. It's always... 
you know, you got to look for it sometimes. You're thinking, okay, what's the connection here? But so you got that passage from Jeremiah defending himself of the danger of him being executed. And the scene of the gospel is, is the passage from St. John the Baptist and his martyrdom. But just already, Jeremiah defending himself already seems to evoke what happened to you, Lord, when you stood bloodied and wounded in front of Caiaphas, in front of Pilate, in front of Herod. There too, the people were saying things against you, as they did against Jeremiah. Remember how painful those words were to our father when he heard the crowd saying to Jesus, crucify him, crucify him, or they, they were saying that to the authorities. Those, just those words were just resonated with our father. You could see he had prayed, he had kind of embedded himself and you know, really gone into the passion narrative and just those words, crucify him, crucifigi eum. They were like painful to, to hear for him. And how Pilate, he could have used his influence to save Jesus, but he didn't. He just washed his hands, as we know. So at least there, there's a parallel between Jeremiah and our Lord. But today's reading is the account of the death of John the Baptist. And this account with the dance of Salome and Herodias, you all know the story, how Herod was having that banquet. Well, it is told in the guise of a flashback. So it's, it's kind of from the point of view of Herod, Antipas, and of course, he later comes to be the same guy who was in the Passion of Our Lord. He is the son of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great, as we know, is the, the famous tyrant who reigned when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And now Herod Antipas, his son, now is reigning over Galilee. And uh, he, well, he had married a daughter of an Arabian king. But whatever, life went on and he ended up in this concubinage, this, this affair with Herodias, who was his brother's wife. Well, it was more than an affair. I mean, they just lived together. And well, John the Baptist had numerous times said things. Jesus himself had said things and criticized his immoral lifestyle. They were saying it caused scandal. John himself didn't mince words. It was very clear. And so people must have looked askance at Herod for his behavior. So today's gospel tells us about Herod there in this party. He's just totally in his own element. You can just picture all the food being you know, being passed around on these amazing platters and the wine and uh, these lovely ladies and uh, he's just like the wine is flowing. You know, you know, give me some more wine, please. You know, and he has nobody to guide him. He's uh, like this completely hedonistic attitude. He's thinking, well, I I deserve an extra drink. 
I, I deserve this rest, I deserve this comfort. And then the dance of this young lady. It all came in through the eyes. There would have been maybe the raucous music, the tambourines, the dance of this girl, all seemed to be enthralling to him. And then he, he goes on to say, well, I'll give half my kingdom and I'll give you whatever you want. You were, you were just amazing the way you danced. He was just like, you know, smitten by this. St. Augustine comments, amid the excesses and sensuality of the guests, oaths are rashly made, which then are unjustly kept. Because as you know, after he makes that oath, his concubine demands the head of John the Baptist right now here on a platter. He asks his, she asks his, her daughter, Salome, to get this the head of John the Baptist. It's a famous passage, and it's, it's just like dripping with violence. It's, uh, and there's a, there's a very famous painting of that very moment when Salome gives the head of John the Baptist on a charger or, 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 a, or a platter to her mother. It's a famous painting by the Italian painter Titian, from about 1510 or 15, I don't know, early 16th century. And uh, I remember seeing it with great excitement in the famous uh, gallery there, Doria Pamphili in Rome. We used to go there and pick out paintings. And uh, there's, there's a number of fantastic paintings in that gallery. And that painting of the head of John the Baptist on this platter has often been confused with Judith with the head of Holofernes from the Old Testament. And so sometimes think, okay, is this Judith with Holofernes or is it Salome with John the Baptist? Actually, you see uh, Herodias more. And, um, and there was a famous uh, interpretation of this by uh, an art historian by the name of Erwin Panofsky. He was a, a German Jew who had to escape uh, the Holocaust He's one of the greatest uh, art historians. He wrote a m marvelous books um, about you know, different uh, themes in art history. And he suggested that, that John the Baptist, in that painting, that, well, you see his head, the way the, way the whole painting is done, it's, it seems to suggest a medieval legend that said that Herodias hated John, yet Salome, her daughter, Actually, she loved him. She loved John, and she wanted to protect him. She didn't expect all this. And according to this legend, she was very frustrated at the fact that her mother had asked her for the head, and then had, she had to go to Herod and ask for the head of John the Baptist, and that she couldn't protect John the Baptist. And so in this snapshot of the head of John the Baptist, in the hands of Herodias, with Salome looking askance on the side, she's kind of like sheeply, sheepishly under the authority of her mother. And yet with the corner of her eyes, she's looking at this, at the head of John the Baptist, whom ultimately she loved and wanted to protect, but she couldn't because she was under the tutelage of her mother. And it, it creates a series of glances and looks and tension. 
And in the middle of all this is this severed head of John the Baptist, but serene. Like he, he's obviously beyond all this. <laughs> he's like, okay, you guys, you have your problems, but I'm now with God. Just imagine the head on a platter. And this, this same scene has been presented by numerous artists. It's, a, it's obviously a very gruesome scene. Caravaggio did a famous scene of the, of the actual execution. And, um, and there are many paintings of the, the birth of John the Baptist, the baptism, you know, when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, and then his execution. And, and yet the whole thing started with Herod hearing about you, Jesus. He had heard about these miracles. He had heard about the reputation of Jesus. And he's thinking that Jesus, well, no, I don't know this guy who they see, but I know John the Baptist. And so this guy, Jesus, must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. That's why the whole story is recounted in the form of a flashback. I mean, that's how it all starts. Herod hears about Jesus and the good things he's done, but he's still, like, you know, feeling deeply remorseful for having allowed his execution. And he thinks that John the Baptist is coming back to get him. <laughs> he's risen from the dead. As though John was now haunting him because he had decapitated him. And so he actually thinks that Jesus' power comes somehow from John. John, but a risen John. It shows the deep connection between John and Jesus. And now, well, the connection is under the guise of passion. We call it, in fact, the passion of John the Baptist. Which brings us to the point of the, of the cross. Because in the whole gospel, the cross, the passion, is where you were going, Lord. I mean, that's where you were on your way to the cross, to embrace the cross. You were moving there. And John, too, now experienced it. First, for a while, in prison. Now, he was decapitated. It was his way of being identified with the cross. Through both the humiliation and, well, the this execution and uh, Jesus you're asking us also now in some way even now during this annual course and in our life to in some way be identified with the cross with your cross and we ask you now for light to see how that identification with the cross can happen Sometimes it's physical pain. Sometimes it's just discomfort. Sometimes it'll be in the form of human humiliations. It could be a professional setback. It could just be just ongoing fatigue. Fatigue. Or professional failures. Or just our aches and pains in the knee, in the back, in the, in the toes. <laughs> Or just the daily grind. Lord, in a certain way I'm here to rest. Yet 
at the same time, I don't want to lose sight of your cross, the cross that in some way you want me to identify myself with. You have said, unless I take up my cross, I cannot be your disciple. So we ask you now, Lord, in our prayer to bring us closer, each one of us, in the different forms, in the different ways in which we could be, somehow be brought closer to your cross, to be identified with it. Let it be, Lord, not be a afraid of the cross, or what our Father used to say, or what people call the cross. I remember my very first time going into the center of the work. My friend showed me the oratory. He said, well, this is, this is the oratory. And uh, I wasn't Catholic then. I didn't know too much. Uh, but I was struck by the light on the tabernacle. But the first thing after the tabernacle, we made a genuflection. I made it too, just uh, out of good manners, as we say. You know. but, uh, but he showed me the seal of the work that was right there on the altar. He said that it is the cross at, at the heart of the world. It's not a medal that encircles the cross or kind of restricts its extent or kind of says where the cross ought to be. It's not saying the cross is here, it's just within this circle. The circle, in fact, is not a circle. I remember him telling me this. That circle is not a circle. He says, it's the globe. It's the world. And inside that globe, inside that planet, inside that world, you have you and me, the entire world, every human being, all of creation, and the cross is right there. I remember being very, very struck by that ex explanation. You know? I just thought it was a cross in a circle. You know, like, it's a nice circle. But he emphasized the fact that the cross has to be in the world. We have to carry the cross in the world, in our life, in our daily affairs. In other words, we have to identify with the, with the cross because we live in the world we, we work we do things where I'm from in Toronto there's a street there where I often walk on called Bloor Street and there's a, a section in front of the Royal Ontario Museum of a bunch of restaurants and bars and things and there's a strange kind of bar and there's a staircase going up and there's a strange kind of symbol I've never really been able to make it out exactly but it's like a, a logo for a bar, which kind of looks like, if you look at it carefully, it looks like it were an upside down cross and a kind of like a boxed sleeve above the larger part of the cross, if you can imagine that. So it's kind of like if you think of the downloading symbol on the internet, but without a, without a, you know, arrow, but it's like a cross, but a downloading symbol, right? I think it was used for a yoga house or whatever. I don't know what it was. But, uh, but it's as though the symbol seems to suggest that the, that the cross upside down is pulling you downward, below the ground, like when you download something. Right? It's, it's a strange symbol. I don't know who made this or what it's supposed to represent. But it, it seems to suggest that the cross pulls you down. When in fact we know 
that when we are identified with your cross, Lord, we are somehow brought up. We are raised up. When you were raised up on the cross, Lord, as you are raised up here in this chapel, people have to look up to you. Our Lady, St. John, they're looking up. And anybody who's on the cross can see from a higher vantage point. You can see the landscape. Jesus had to be nailed to that. And he wasn't the last person to be nailed to a cross. Others were nailed too. Many martyrs were nailed to the cross. St. Peter also was nailed to the cross, though upside down. St. Andrew also to a cross, but in the form of an X. I read recently about St. Paul Mickey and his companions in Nagasaki, Japan, in the 16th century, together with, I think there were 23 clergy and, and laity. And as they were being nailed to the cross, they were singing the Te Deum. And Paul Mickey was courageous preaching, actually, from the cross as people came to mock him. And indeed, he sounds a lot like Jeremiah. He said, from the cross, this is Paul Mickey, from the cross, nailed to the cross, he says, in Japan, he says, the only reason for my being killed is that I have taught the doctrine of Christ. I thank God it is for this reason that I die. I believe that I am telling the truth before I die. After Christ's example, I forgive my persecutors. I do not hate them. I ask God to have pity on all, and I hope my blood will fall on my fellow men as fruitful rain. His blood falls like fruitful rain. We, our mortifications, our acts of self-denial, the way we embrace the cross, has to be like fruitful rain. The pain, the self-denial. We know that, indeed, that martyrdom both St. Paul Mickey and, and, and all those others really left a deep mark in Japan and, and it really was a great impulse in Japan. You know, many, many, many people converted after that. The power of the cross, the power of mortification, of self-denial, of sacrifice, but always united ultimately to Christ's cross. It's not just our example as such. It's, it's really the fact that we are united to Jesus, just as St. John the Baptist was united to Christ in his passion. Though John the Baptist was, was killed before our Lord. You'll remember that passage from 1931 when our father, on August 7th, celebrated Holy Mass and had a kind of a mystical experience there that still resonates even today. During the very moment of the consecration, so he was presumably just kneeling, not kneeling, but, but leaning over, gazing now at the unconsecrated host and about to say the words of consecration I think he would have said the words of consecration and then genuflected 
And as he did that, so now with the real presence, he heard those words from St. John. Etego si exaltatus fuera terra, omnia tram ad me ipsum. And I, if I am lifted up on the earth, I will draw all things to myself. That's, it's a very kind of difficult to understand statement exactly. When I am lifted up, traditionally it was seen when I'm lifted up on the cross. I remember telling this, this exact passage to, see, to, uh, to Jordan Peterson when I was at his home. When I went, had the opportunity to go and bless his home with his wife there and some friends. And uh, he was talking about Moses lifting up the standard where people could gaze on that standard with the snakes, the bronze serpent rather, and they would get healed. And I explained this connection that I do. I just you know, thought about it. If I am lifted up on the cross. And he's, you know, he's nodding and taking note. It's very, very intense when he listens to these things. For our father, that moment, hearing or yeah, hearing, experiencing those words in the Mass was a kind of, what he described as a kind of divine locution. He said, at first I was afraid. He was kind of like wondering what this was. He was afraid because he was in front of something very supernatural. But then, this calm, like the head of John the Baptist, calm, serene. He felt a sense of abandonment. You know, this, you sense abandonment and calm and serenity when you really deeply sense that God is truly good and loving. He's a loving God. He's not mad. He just wants to tell you something. God is not a God who is wagging his finger at us, angry at us. So, you know, like the, the famous phrase uh, by the Protestant preacher Jonathan Edwards written in Connecticut in 1741 in that famous sermon called We Are Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Like, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> you can have your sermon, dude. I mean, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. You can just see him there holding this soul and just squeezing, you know. It's a, it just kind of combines this vivid imagery of hell with observations on the evilness of the world and emphasizes God's wrath on unbelievers after death, promising a just horrific and fiery hell for sinners. For sinners. Because we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. But instead, our Father has this locution, this this divine locution, I will draw all things to myself. I will draw you to my loving heart. I am not angry. Even if you're a sinner, I'm not angry. You can understand why St. Josemaria came out of that, well, that locution with great confidence. And what did he understand after that moment in Holy Mass? That famous phrase he said, Y comprendí que serán los hombres y, lo, y mujeres de Dios quienes levantarán la cruz 
con las doctrinas de Cristo sobre el pináculo de toda actividad humana. I understood that it would be men and women of God who would lift up the cross with the doctrines of Christ under the pinnacle of all human activity. And then I saw the Lord triumphing, drawing all things to himself. That, that was a beautiful experience of, of like mystical piety, a mystical locution. He wrote this later in his, in his intimate notes. He understood there something he had not seen before. It was like a passage he had read, the passage from John, right? I will draw all things to myself. He had read that before. But now it's as though he was experiencing the sense of splendor. Traditionally, it had been seen as Jesus being raised to the cross. I will draw all things my, to myself. So by him being raised to the cross, on the cross, he would draw his salvific power you know, would draw thing, men, women to himself. But now the Lord made our Father see more deeply the sense of splendor of that. Another way would also mean that we, with our work, with our daily activity, with our identification to the cross, the cross of Christ, we can do a tremendous apostolate. We can drew, draw all things not to ourselves, but to draw all things to Christ on the cross with our work with our example he understood something deeper there Lord I don't want to be afraid of the cross I don't want to have a scary Jonathan Edwards sermon we ask you Lord to help us really discover the beauty of being identified with your cross and drawing all things to you in, in an act of you know, genuine piety and genuine sanctification. And our Blessed Mother, who we also see there at the foot of the cross with St. John, she'll intercede for us and help us to follow that sense of abandonment in the power of your cross. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you all to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for